welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. In each episode, we choose a saga, offer a close reading of the text, and then judge the actions of the characters at The Saga Thing. Well, John, we have been teasing this one all summer, so mm-hmm. uh, let's not shilly-shally with idle chit-chat about these summer vacations we're having. we got a lot to cover here. We certainly do. Uh, why don't you just hit the proverbial button and we'll get this thing rolling. I don't, well, don't think I didn't notice the nice little pun you made there on thing. <laughs> it's not always intentional, I'll have you know. Uh-huh, sure. And what's so proverbial about this button here? You've, you've never heard the proverb about the button? Is there one? How's that one go? Go ahead. Uh, the proverb is, hit the button or get hit with my axe. <laughs> well, how very appropriate for this saga. It is actually, isn't it? Yeah. Hit the button. You realize there's no button, right? Join us as we trace the life of Iceland's most famous and longest surviving outlaw, Grettir Asmundersen, from its tempestuous beginning to its tragic end. But before we delve into his amazing exploits as an adult, we must look back to his origins. In traditional saga fashion, we begin with his great-grandfather, Onan Treefoot, great man indeed. We follow Onan's efforts to resist the increasing power of King Harold Fairhair and his struggles to come to terms with the loss of his property and his leg. Forced to redefine his own identity and to make a new life in foreign lands, he emerges as the truest hero in the saga, renowned as the bravest and most agile of all the one-legged men in Iceland. From Onan, we wend our way through battles over whale corpses, murder, and legal cases in the genealogy until we arrive at Gretter himself. We'll look briefly at Gretter's inglorious youth, his troubled relationship with his father, Asmund, and the events leading up to his first outlaw. Will Gretter learn to control his temper and put his strength to good use, or will he flout the norms of society and continue to make his own way more difficult? Find out as Saga Thing takes on Gretter's Saga, chapters 1 through 20. This is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, this is one of the more popular sagas out there. Uh, maybe not as big as Njal Saga or Ale Saga, but definitely one of the giants. Mm-hmm. And, and deservedly so. Well, I mean, it definitely deserves the attention it gets. But I'm personally still debating its place in the pantheon of saga literature. Oh, really? I thought you liked this one as much as I did. Well, don't get me wrong. I mean, I had a great time reading Gretchen's Saga again and tweeting about it. But I'm just – I'm really conflicted about how to rate this one. It's a late saga, like likely dating to the early 14th century, and it does some things a little differently than most sagas that we read. Well, you can, you're talking about the focus on Gretter? I, I, that's part of it, but uh, but we'll encounter a number of biographical sagas that do a good yeah. job of balancing biography with dramatic tension. Hell, we saw a lot of that in the sagas of the warrior poets. So I'm I'm just not sure how I feel about the narrative progression of Gretter's saga. I, mean, I thoroughly enjoyed myself on the one hand. And on the other, I sometimes found myself pausing and thinking, what's, what is the point of all of this? Hmm. <laughs> but, you know, I, I'm, I'm not alone in that confusion. Critics tend to be somewhat divided on Greater Saga as well. Um, well, podcasters apparently are a little divided on Greater Saga. Yes. Um, and we, we always seem to quote Christensen and uh, Theodore M. Anderson in the intro. So uh, I thought I'd give you their thoughts on the saga. All right. Start with Christensen. He's always good for a quote or two. Okay. So Christensen compliments the author on his ability to work with a variety of sources, pulling material from historical texts, uh, from a number of other sagas, actually, uh, from continental romances and, and even from folk traditions. Yeah, I mean, there really are a lot of sources and analogs for Greta's adventures. Uh, those of you who are well-versed in medieval literature will recognize a number of textual echoes when you read this saga. Exactly. And the most famous of these are the number of parallels with the Old English poem Beowulf, which some of you might have heard of. 
Uh, there are at least three separate episodes in Gretter's saga that seem to echo Beowulf's fight with Grendel. Yeah, and we'll deal with those when they come up, but they won't be in this episode. They'll be in, what, the second one? Yeah, I, right. I believe our second episode will start with one of those, um, when Gretter fights a bear in a scene that shares many of the features of the Grendel section of Beowulf. Right, but we're going to wait until next time for that. That's right. And and if you're really interested in the textual history of Gretter's saga, including theories of its authorship, its sources and analogs, and the presumed genetic relationship to Beowulf, then I think you'll enjoy the saga brief that I'm putting together on the critical reception of Gretcher's saga. I intend to enjoy that. Uh, we'll dig deeper into the scholarship there, leaving room here for a, a more close reading of the text itself. Excellent. And this isn't one of those saga briefs, John, that, that we tease and then they never come to pass. I've really got this one scheduled to go up <laughs> right after we finish the judgment section. Now, this really is the summer of Greta, isn't it? It kind of has to be, doesn't it? Uh, th- there's just so much good material to play with here. Um, but I was supposed to be talking about Christensen's response to the saga. Right, so what does he think of it? Well, like I said before, he appreciates what the author's trying to do. Yeah, there's a big butt coming. There is. There is. Uh, as he moves into his analysis of the saga, he says, There are clear signs in Greta's saga that the art of saga writing is in decline. Ouch, Really? That's a bit harsher than I expected for this saga. What did he, does he say why? Yeah, he does. Uh, he complains that the characters are relatively flat and uninteresting, mostly there to motivate uh, Grettir. Uh, but more problematic for him is the, as he says, superfluity of extravagances, which I think is a nice turn of scholarly phrase. So in other words, there are too many monsters, trolls, and ghosts in the saga for his taste. Exactly, John. He does praise the characterization of Gretir, however. Uh, some earlier critics had noted that Gretir's attitudes are often contradictory, one minute acting the part of the benevolent outlaw hero, and the next robbing people and using his strength to bully. Mm. Uh, but Christensen applauds the inconsistencies in Gretir's character as an effective means of, of humanizing an otherwise potentially unlikable individual. Hmm. Unlikable? Yeah. That's a... Uh, I don't know if that, that might be going too far. Well, uh, you know, to be fair, Christensen doesn't say unlikable. I, I'm uh-huh. extrapolating a little bit, but I think... Accurately. Right. I think we're going to find though, a lot of Icelanders uh, rank Gretter among their favorite figures from the sagas. Which I find um, interesting. And I imagine Theodore Anderson will offer a slightly more glowing assessment. You'd like to think that, wouldn't you? I would. But he's even more critical. Like, you know, brutally okay, you know so. what? I actually should have known because he didn't like Erbig's saga either. No. And in this case, he accuses Greta's saga of being repetitive and losing its hold on the reader's mind by missing opportunities to develop narrative tension. Uh, these are his words. The story is not so exciting, and the picture of outlawry is not so oppressive as in Gisla Saga. This is not so much because the scenes are inherently less vivid, but because they are not at all to the point. Greta's Saga tends to neglect narrative conflict and becomes digressive. It includes episodes that have no function. Okay, that is worse than Christensen's analysis, uh, but it might be a little bit more on the money. Uh, <laughs> but most... Critics like this. Did you find anyone who enjoyed the saga? Well, sure. I mean, the heavy hitters like Christensen, Anderson, and even Carol Clover may not be fans of this saga's narrative structuring, but there are plenty of people who genuinely love the saga, often for the exact reasons Christensen and Anderson seem to dislike it. Like Frederick Amory says in his essay about the medieval Icelandic outlaw, one scholar's literary unity is another's literary disunity. And <laughs> for for most, Gretir is a fascinating character uh, whose monster fights... We wonder fights. why no one wants to read scholarship. <laughs> right. So, yeah, his monster fights actually help separate him and his saga from the standard saga fare of feuding and politics. At the same time, most are aware of Gretir's problematic nature. Uh, mm. And that's something that lends depth and, and texture to the, to the saga. Um, but like Christensen says, that has a humanizing effect and it resonates with most audiences. Right. But again, we won't get to see much of Greta's character development in this first part of our uh, saga summary. Mm-hmm. 
will be spending most of this part with his great-grandfather, Onan Treefoot. Which is not a bad thing. Uh, I know it may seem a little odd to some of you out there that we're not actually doing much with Gretir in this first part of our summary, but trust us when we say that there's plenty of good material before Gretir ever shows up, and we can't even cover most of it. Right, no, it's true. Um, Gretir doesn't even enter the saga until the 14th chapter, mm-hmm. and lots of cool stuff happens before that. And it's about time that we get to it. Wait, 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 wait. Uh, we forgot the most important part of the introduction. Oh, is that right? What did we miss, John? The Kravenkel's measurement. <laughs> well, I'm not sure it's the most important part, but at this point, it's certainly a contributor to the saga thing approach to the sagas. So how many Hrofenkels is Gret here? I, I guess it has to be a lot because mm-hmm. this is the longest saga we've done. Yeah, it is. Uh, how many do you think it is? Um, I, I would put it at eight because it just seems to keep going and going. Well, you're not, you're not too far off, actually. I think everyone will be impressed to hear that Gretter's saga weighs in at a hefty 6.92 Hrobengels. Almost seven. Which is nearly three Hrobengels longer than Erbiga's saga, which was our previous record holder. Very impressive, actually. Now, there are a few of these heavyweight sagas, and we'll probably save them for the summer times because of our schedules. <laughs> <I think so. laughs> um, but this is the first, and uh, maybe not the last, that comes in at a respectable length of a modern novel. No, it's true. Um, it's also part of why the Penguin edition of the Sagas of the Icelanders includes this quote from Milan Kundera, saying that if the sagas had been written in a more international language, we would have regarded them as an anticipation or even the foundation of the mm. European novel. Uh, Kundera is making a point about the structure and form of the sagas as much as their length, but it's still an interesting point to consider. Definitely. And I think the, the point of the language that is written in is, is an interesting one. Uh, I mean, how, how much more famous would the sagas be if they were written in a more standard, uh, romance European language? Right. Or if they'd, you know, if they'd been borrowed by the continent the way that they borrowed from the continent. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway, so let's get this monster underway. Gretir's saga starts off as most of the grander sagas do several generations before Gretir's birth. And about half of this first episode is going to be about Gretir's various ancestors. Right. And that's that's fine because they are just awesome. They are. But there are a lot of them. Uh, we tried to condense them a little bit. Um, but those of you who are planning to read this saga but haven't yet will quickly realize that the first chapter in true saga fashion begins with a virtual onslaught of names. <laughs> Come on. You're putting people off right away. Fear <laughs> not, folks. We're here to provide the trail of breadcrumbs you need. And on the way, we'll answer a few questions that may be preying on your mind. Like, why are there three different guys named Gretter in this saga? (laughs) Why do so many of these other people sound vaguely familiar? Mm -hmm. And did Osmond Greylocks marry his aunt or his cousin or what? Wait a minute. Did he? Well, we'll get to that. Do we Uh, get to that? I'm trying to provide a sense of drama and tension. (laughs) (laughs) It's disturbing either way. All right, so uh, just how far back are we starting here? I think I know the answer. Well, uh, the saga starts by introducing a man named Onan Ofigson, who's going to turn out to be Gretter's great-grandfather. And it's not just Onan that we meet right away. It's his entire extended family and several other families who are all going to end up entwined in Gretter's family tree. And this isn't at all uncommon for the sagas, but this time out it's even more important because Gretter's bloodline is mixed with some of the most important families in both Iceland and Norway. Uh, For example, Gretter's going to end up being a third cousin of King Olaf the Saint of Norway, uh, although Gretter himself is definitely not considered a candidate for sainthood. No, he is not. Uh, Onan's sister's son's daughter, though, turns out to be the mother of King Olaf. Sister's son's daughter, huh? That clears that up nicely mm-hmm. for us. <laughs> it does for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, before we get on to the descendants, uh, Onan is worth talking about. 
I've actually spent a lot of time thinking about this guy. Yeah, I know you're a big fan of Onant, uh, and you've given a couple uh, conference presentations on him and his disability, haven't you? Uh, yeah, and uh, also uh, I did an article a few years back uh, for a book of essays on medieval disability studies edited by Josh Eiler. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'll, I'll try to keep myself under control so that we can get to the main part of the saga. Well, feel free to share your insights with us. <laughs> try and stop me. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get this thing started, shall we? The Saga of Onan Treefoot. I am undone since my part in the Shield Thunder. The battle giants did me great injury. My thought is that warriors now think me of little worth. It is my greatest loss of happiness. Are we really calling this section the saga of Onan Treefoot? Listen, Onan's story is worthy of its own saga. I'm just giving the guy the credit he deserves. All right. I'm not, I'm not going to argue. Uh, the poem you just heard, by the way, is a composition by Onan concerning the origins of his nickname, Treefoot, mm-hmm. uh, which is how it's translated into English most of the time. It actually technically is tree leg. Yeah. Uh, it's a great poem, and I, I think it captures Onan's depression and the dilemma he finds himself in quite nicely. Yeah, it's a, it's a great bit of writing, and it's a great way to introduce the subject of this first section, mm-hmm. which is the story of Onan's life after the loss of his leg. And as the poem suggests, it's not an easy road for poor Onan. No, not at all, but it, it gives the opening to the saga a lot of character and I think a bit of heart. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, now, in order to understand the poem, we have to go back to the very beginning of the saga, which offers an expanded version of the story of Onan Treefoot, or Woodleg, uh, found in the Islendinga book and the Lannama book. Those texts are primarily concerned with Onan's coming to Iceland and the lands he settled, but the texts do make the following note. Onan Treefoot, the son of Ofig Clubfoot, the son of Ivar Horsetail, fought against King Harald in Hafisfjord. And there lost his leg. As an aside here, do you know that the more traditional translation of Ivar's nickname is not Horsetail? Oh, what is it? Horsecock. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, I I mean, if I I were Ivar, I know which one I'd prefer. (laughs) (laughs) Now, presumably this uh, bit from the Lanama book is the only thing that the author has to go on, right? Perhaps, but... Given Greta's fame, one would assume that there are more stories of Onan Treyfoot floating around that the author made use of, whether through folk tradition or expanded historical accounts. No, I, I don't think so, but but it's hard to say either way, so who am I to say? <laughs> What's impressive to me is how the saga author takes this one line and creates an imagined history for Onan that's not only believable, but remarkably affecting at the same time. Yeah, he recognizes the potential of this line and runs with it. He emphasizes Onan's outlawry from Norway, which of course is going to foreshadow Gretter's eventual outlawry. And most impressive to me, he fleshes out the character by giving us a look into how a man of his ability deals with the loss of a leg. Yeah, it's quite brilliant, actually. So in order to set up the narrative of rebirth and outlawry that Onan will experience, the saga author begins by establishing Onan as an accomplished Norwegian Viking and raider. Now, along with his friends, Orm the Wealthy, Balky Blankson, and Halvard the Norwegian, he's got five well-manned raiding ships under his command. Mm-hmm. They're, a, they're a very successful operation, and their greatest achievement is a raid off the Irish coast, where they defeat the navy of King Kjarval in a sea battle. 
Uh, so these are experienced sea warriors as well, which is going to be important yeah. soon. But when these very able-bodied and well-respected Vikings return to Norway, they find the place in an uproar. That's right. And this is going to sound a bit like a broken record to our regular listeners. But like so many of the sagas, Grettir's saga starts off with Harold Fairhair's conquest of Norway, which culminates right. in the Battle of Harvestfjord. Um, ah, and Harvestfjord. Ah, Harvestfjord. <laughs> Harvestfjord in summer. And since Onan's sister, Guthbjörg, is going to be the great-grandmother of Harold Fairhair's descendant, King Olaf, you'd assume that Onan is going to be among Harold's supporters, right? Yeah, but you know what happens when you assume. Mm. Uh, Onan is actually in the center of the fighting against Harold. And it's not so much that they've got a great stake in the political implications of the battle in this saga. Onan and his buddies are warriors, and they're most mm-hmm. eager to prove themselves in battle, almost as if this event is a showcase for their abilities. Right, and Onan gets his chance. Mm-hmm. Uh, late in the battle, his ship goes prow to prow with Harold's ship. Onan is standing on the front of his ship, hacking down any of Harold's men who try to board him. The king's men eventually say, uh, this guy's putting up a tough fight. Let's give him some memento of the battle. Mm-hmm. And then they double team him. He holds them off, but at one point he leans back to parry a blow. And at that point, another man chops off his leg just below the knee. Oh, such a great moment. And Onan mm-hmm. obviously falls out of the battle at this point. Um, and it's really just by luck that he's dragged over into the ship of Thrand Bjarnason uh, before Harold's men complete their victory. Mm-hmm. And with uh, the wounded Onan aboard, Thrand Bjarnason sets sail for safer lands. Now, uh, the saga doesn't note whether Onan and Thran knew each other before this, uh, but these two men are going to become very good friends. And that's a good thing, because the newly disabled Onan is going to be in need of a good mm-hmm. friend. Uh, as the Islendinga book says, Onan lost his leg in the battle and has to wear a peg leg for the rest of his life. And so he ends up with the nickname Trefotr, or wood leg. Mm-hmm. Now, meanwhile, as everyone probably knows by now, Harold's won the battle, and so Thrand and Onan are in pretty desperate straits. Um, they're outlawed from Norway. They can't return there. Um, they're essentially homeless and destitute. Absolutely. Uh, and this is an age when a lot of new communities of expat Norwegians are founded around northern Europe. It's not just Iceland. Uh, small groups of refugees carve out new homes for themselves in Ireland, in Scotland, the Orkneys, the Hebrides, England, Francia, Russia, really pretty much anywhere a longship can sail to on short notice. And and these two are going to bounce around for quite a while. Uh, they mm-hmm. visit the British Isles to try to raise an alliance with men like Germund Darkskin uh, to fight back against Harold, but that all fizzles out. Yeah, I mean, they slowly come to realize that most of the Norwegian diaspora has come to accept their exile. A man like Germund, who fled Norway before the battle, lost his land, but was able to take away nearly all of his movable wealth. He's actually set up pretty well in his new home, and as he says to Onan and Thrand, he has no intention of becoming Harold's slave and begging for what he once owned outright. And, and that seems to be the prevailing opinion among most of mm-hmm. them. I mean, most of these guys are looking forward at this point, and they don't see the point in continuing a lost cause against Harold, who's already won. Right, and it's, it's not hard to see their point, but it's a bitter pill for men like Thrand and Onan, who risked everything and lost a lot in choosing to fight Harold, when other men... Men like Germund, for example, chose to run away with their ships full of their belongings. Mm -hmm. A good point. Now, they need to find a new purpose for themselves. And as you said, uh, you've been interested in Onan Woodleg for a while. Um, So why don't you explain what's interesting about him? What do you do with him? Well, I've talked a bit before about my overlapping interest in medieval depictions and responses to disability with the sagas. 
Uh, Onan is an especially interesting case because he opens up multiple conversations about the meaning of his injury within the text. Okay, for example, what do you got? Uh, all right, well, so let's look at the months after Garriman turns Thrond and Onan down, and they have to face the reality that they've lost the war. Onan falls into a depression, and when Thrond asks him about it, Onan responds with the verse that opened up this section. I am undone since my part in the shield thunder. The battle giants did me great injury. My thought is that warriors now think me of little worth. It is my greatest loss of happiness. As the poem suggests, Onan's depression is rooted in his sense of his diminished effectiveness as a warrior. He's worthless in his own eyes, and he's afraid that others will dismiss him as worthless too. Sure, but this is where we see Thran's value as a friend to Onan. He immediately reassures him that he'll be thought of as brave and bold as ever, and then suggests that Onan should seek a wife to help him settle down in a new land. Yeah, that's a subtle move, and I like mm-hmm. it. Uh, Thrand kind of shifts Onan's attentions away from his self-pity and toward an indirect solution. He recognizes that Onan's feelings of inadequacy are ultimately shaking his sense of his manhood. Yeah, I love that point that you make. Uh, so He's saying getting married and, and presumably starting a family is a way for Onan to reassert his masculinity and his virility. Well, it worked for us. <laughs> well, speak, speak for yourself. <laughs> I got married when I was 20 years old, John, and I was still quite youthful. Uh, I was feeling good about my manliness, uh, and I had no issues when I got hitched. Fair enough. So those (laughs) came later. Yeah. But the the point here is that Thrand is showing a surprising amount of emotional sensitivity for a Viking. (laughs) I guess you could put it that way. Uh, But it's also possible he's just telling Onan to get over himself and get on with things. That's true. Uh, Either way, he's steering Onan toward finding a new place for himself in this post Hoffersfjord world. <laughs> well, that's easier said than done. I mean, there's not really a culture of accommodating the physically impaired in the ninth century. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, we could get into saints' cults and leper colonies and that sort of thing, but that's not what we're talking about here. This right. is a man with a missing leg, and he faces real questions about his ability to continue earning a living, especially when his primary source of income up to now has been Viking raids. No, that's right. It's a tricky thing. Um, the Thrond arranges a meeting with a wealthy man named Ofig Gretir to discuss matching Onan to Ofig's daughter, Asa. Now, uh, we should be clear that this isn't the main Gretir of Gretir's saga. Ofig Gretir is another of the men who escaped mm-hmm. from Norway before the battle, and he managed to get away with most of his stuff. So he set up pretty comfortably, while Onund is, again, basically destitute. Yeah, and Onan's fears about being devalued due to his injury are kind of confirmed when Ofig objects to the match. He says... Well, his lands I reckon of no worth, and it seems to me one could say he is not whole. And besides, my daughter is a child. Okay, so essentially, this is Onan's worst nightmare. Uh, yes. And, and wait a minute, he he says my daughter is a child? This <laughs> yes. Very weird. Why is Thrand trying to set Onan up with a little girl? I don't really have a good answer for that part. Um, mm. Although perhaps, you know, uh, Ofig is just being an overprotective father. Uh, <laughs> right. But Thrawn's not going to tolerate the part about Onan being not whole. He cuts in and says that Onan is more valiant than many men who were whole in the legs. Oh, what a comeback. Well, it works. Mm-hmm. Uh, an agreement is reached despite Ofig's reluctance with an engagement period of three years to give Asa time to mature. The dowry will be paid for in movable wealth because neither Onan nor Ofig has any use for the Norwegian land they've lost to Harald. Okay, but, John, why does this work? I mean, not that I think Ofeg's being a jerk here, uh, but it doesn't seem like there's any pressing reason to change his mind or give, uh, um, 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 what's his name, uh, any pressing reason to give Onan any respect. Why doesn't mm-hmm. he just give these two the bums rush? 
<laughs> the old derriere velocity. Yeah. Uh, well, I think the uh, the resolution of the marriage proposal gives some hint into how Onan's injury was meant to be understood within the context of the saga. Mm. Onan's missing leg, it's kind of like his and Ofig's missing land. Right? It's a potential liability in his future prospects, but it also recalls his courageous stand against King Harold. Mm. And whereas someone like uh, Ofeg avoided fighting and managed to set himself up comfortably in a new land, mm-hmm. Onan's arrived late and lost a leg because he was busy fighting against Harold. Exactly. So yeah. Onan's missing leg becomes a symbol. It means that he has risked more and suffered more than many men who were whole in the legs, mm. as Thrawn says. So Thrawn's eyewitness testimony of Onan's valor at Hoffersfjord turns the wooden leg into a token of the resistance that all three men belong to. Interesting. There, there's something of that in modern reception of uh, wounded warriors who come home from, from battle. Um, mm-hmm. That there's a perception, and they might even carry with themselves a perception of, of being less than whole. Um, and much of society might receive them in that way. Right. Um, and yet that, that missing limb or the injury, whether physical or, or internal is, uh, or psychological is, is really a marker of their, their ability, not their, mm-hmm. their disability. Right. Um, uh, I actually heard, uh, uh, the other side of that is that, you know, many of these soldiers now are, they're kind of resisting that idea of, uh, having lost a limb or missing a limb. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard a, a soldier interviewed on NPR, uh, Memorial Day last year, who said essentially, I, I still have two legs. It's just that now they're detachable. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. And it's, and it, I, I do think that society is starting to change, uh, its, its view of that kind of thing. When you see that, it, mm-hmm. it is a remarkable thing as opposed to something that we want to turn our eyes away from. Right. Um, I right. think the narrative is, or, or the culture of, of disabilities changing mm-hmm. to some degree. Um, and Onan's a good, uh, a good symbol of that in this moment. Yes. Um, anyway, it's, it's, it's a not so subtle reminder that unlike Thrand and Onan, Ofeg didn't stay and fight. Yeah. I, I tend to read this section as a pretty harsh put down yeah. of the men who cut and ru- cut and ran, like Garamund and Ofeg. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it works. After Thrawn argues with him, Ofig proposes solutions to his own objections that actually provide material support to Onand. Right? The long engagement, although it delays a formal induction into the wedded state that Thrawn believes will help his friend's spirits, does provide connections in this new land that Onan sorely needs. Yeah. And, and three years is a pretty standard engagement time in the sagas, especially yes. if uh, the prospective groom is about to sail away, as they always mm-hmm. do. Uh, we saw in the sagas of the warrior poets that it's entirely possible that a, a sailor or a Viking could die abroad with no news of his fate ever getting to his fiance's family. Uh, if you remember, Thord Colbinson took advantage of this to steal Odney Isle Candle from Bjorn Champion of the Hitterall people. Mm-hmm. Um, so setting a deadline on a groom's return is an important part of the negotiations. Absolutely. So the, the time also allows Onan to reestablish himself as a man of means. Now, that task is made easier by his new friendship with Ofig and his growing reputation as a hero of Hofsfjord. Mm-hmm. Uh, then Ofig offers a dowry to be paid in movable wealth, which is a generous future stake for a man who, as of yet, lacks a home into which to bring his future wife. And so Onan gains an alliance with a man of consequence and a place in the world outside of Norway. And so it's a pretty good deal all around. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's purchased in part with the currency of his reputation as signified through his injury. Okay, but let's not get too theoretical here. Uh, mm-hmm. Onan's injury isn't just a symbol. It's it's actually a missing leg. Right. And, and for a man whose livelihood has been based on his physical prowess, that is a major problem. 
And we've had other guys lose legs in the sagas that we've read, but we've never really looked at what it means to them to live in the saga world with a missing limb. No, that's that's true. And I think the author is careful not to lose sight of the real difficulties that Onan faces. Yeah. And especially the toll that the injury takes on him mentally and emotionally. But Onan learns quickly how to use his brains to compensate for his loss. Uh, his, his first chance to prove himself comes when two Viking captains named Vigbjolf and Vestmar begin raiding in the region. Oh, yeah, these guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they start raiding in Ireland, but uh, Thran's brother Avon, the Easterner, manages to fight them off. Uh, then they move to into the Hebrides, uh, so Thran and Onund quickly muster ships and sail into battle against them. When the time comes for the two sides to confront one another, the, the raiders react to the news that Onund Treeleg is their opponent with derisive laughter and insults. We're not used to seeing men go into battle who can't move themselves. Onan's response is great. He just quietly says, well, you never know until you've tried. It it comes across as a moment of resolve for him, and even he doesn't know whether he'll be able to fight properly. Mm -hmm. But he's determined to roll the dice and see what happens. You have to love a guy like that. Uh, It turns out that Onan's pretty crafty. He's arranged ambushes to weaken the raiders, including... Some of his men are hidden on a cliff, prepared to throw rocks down onto the ships. I love this part. So the raiding fleet gets pounded by rocks and attacked from all sides, and things get pretty one-sided in a hurry. Exactly. I, and we're not covering the scene in its uh, true glory. You've no, got we are to not doing it. it full justice. No. Uh, but all the same, this doesn't prove anything. Onan hasn't yet shown that he can stand and fight. He's just organized well, a cool battle. Right. So this is the moment when he decides to find out. Ah, good for him. Uh, Onan boards Vigbjolf's ship with his men, but instead of clearing the ship with his superior numbers, Onan orders his men to place a log under the stump of his leg and to fall back and watch the fight. Mm-hmm. Then he calls out Vigbjolf for single combat. Now, this is about the worst circumstances possible for a duel. They're on a mm-hmm. damaged ship that's moving around in the water, and the deck is probably covered in seawater and blood and other slippery things, and, uh-huh. and they've both already been fighting for a while. What's your point? Well, well, Onan's either going to really impress everyone or he's going to die. <laughs> but since he's got to have some kids later, you know, it's probably not too hard to figure out what's going to happen. Right. Fair enough. Uh, so it's a hard fight, but Vigbjolf lunges too far on a swing mm-hmm. and his sword gets stuck in the log under Onan's stump. Yeah. And before he can recover, Onan pivots around and chops off Vigbjolf's arm. But he's not done. Right. Onan then stands over Vigbjolf's bleeding body in Vigbjolf's final moments, and he recites this spiteful poem. Look, and see whether your wounds are not really bleeding. Do you see me give any ground? The one-legged distributor of wealth got not even a scratch from you. Many have more talk than sense. The destroyer of the troll of battle is not so valiant when he's put to the test. <laughs> Those are some harsh words to hear as you're dying. They are. Uh, I think in this moment we're seeing a man who's really struggling with his emotional recovery from his injury. Uh, Onan's yeah. insistence on shipboard single combat is about as close to a reenactment of his defeat as Hopfersjord as he can possibly manage. Yeah. It's, it's like he's trying to erase his self-perception as disabled and to prove to himself that he's still a man of consequence. And and he's successful in that. I mean, from this point on, everyone seems to treat him as they would anyone else. And, and as we know, he eventually establishes a successful farm and a family in Iceland. Yes, definitely. But 
I think there's more going on there. The verse that he spits at Vigbioth suggests that for Onan, that missing leg still dominates his thoughts and, I, I would say, his self-image. Hmm. While Thrond is working to construct Onan as a vigorous figure of social value, Onan represents himself in his poetry simply as Einfotr, one-legged, the one-legged man. So even as he stands over his defeated enemy, Onan's thoughts return to what he perceives as his disability. That's an interesting reading. I mean, most people would probably look at the poem and see a moment of triumph for Onan. Uh, something like, yeah, he's finally overcome his disability in his own mind and in public as well. Yes, and that's there. But lurking beneath that, I think, is the sense of unwholeness that continues to haunt him. Ooh, I like that, John. I like that. That's well, good. that's why I get paid the big bucks. Well, I know you don't get paid big bucks, but... Uh... <laughs> That's obviously a shame. I expect to get start getting paid big bucks anytime soon. Well, a great mind like yours shouldn't be working for mere shekels. And yet it does, my friend, and yet it does. Mere (laughs) shekels on the dollar. Uh, But in the interest of getting on with things, uh, let me sum things up. Um, Onan has a number of other adventures. Uh, We are really cutting out a lot of material here, Uh, including getting involved in several brief feuds and nearly getting into a brawl with Thrawn's brother, Avond who works as a defender of that same Irish coast where Onan used to go raiding. That's right. Uh, he had that battle with Kjarval, the Irish king, in the first chapter. Mm-hmm. And Avent, uh, Thran's brother, is married to Kjarval's daughter, and he's in charge of Ireland's defense. So he's probably well. looking for revenge against Onan, right? Well, he tries, uh, but Thrond once again steps in and warns his brother that he'll side with Onan if it comes to a fight. Mm-hmm. This is quite a friend. Uh, the three of them become friends instead, which I have to say is kind of a narrative letdown. That fits with the um, saga. But, but it does add to Onan's impressive resume. Even his yeah. enemies can't stay mad at him. As you said, we are severely cutting the Onan discussion short. I mean, mm. there's so much more going on in his story. I mean, after wandering around the British Isles for a while, Onan makes the inevitable journey to Iceland, where he's given a large tract of land by Eric Snare in the Westfjords. And this is where his family is going to be based from this point forward. Yeah, it's, it's nice to get to Iceland reasonably quickly for once. Uh, in yeah. Vatnsdala, we didn't get to the island until three generations into the family. It was far too long to wait, I think. And Onan's life in Iceland is relatively peaceful, but not without drama at the start. And shortly what, after he arrives, his father-in-law, Ofe Gretter. Wait, 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 wait. What happened yeah? to speeding things up? Well, this is going to be quick, and I want to make sure we mention it, because it fits into one of the themes of the early section. Okay, go ahead. I want to hear what's so important. Okay, well, this is about Ofeg's death. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, that is important. Go ahead. <laughs> On you go. All right, I will. Uh, so Ofeg gets into a disagreement with a man named Thorbjorn, the champion of the Earls. Uh, never going to th- to get into a feud with a guy named Thorbjorn, the champion of the Earls. Yeah, it's never going to end well. Things escalate quickly to the point that Thorbjorn kills Ofeg Grettir. Um, now, and for starters, we have to point out the name Grettir seems to come with connotations of frowning or grimacing. So I'm imagining he's a fairly grumpy person. I take it to mean frowny face, uh, which works nicely with the various Gretchers in the saga. Uh, we should say also Bernard Scudder actually translates Gretir as snake. Yeah, what's uh, that all about? Which is not a particularly well-omened name either. Either way, this is sort of an inauspicious name. Uh, but but uh, Ofig isn't actually a blood relative of the Gretir this saga is about. Uh, so there's really no reason at all for them to share a name. No. Uh, but what's interesting about this situation is what Onan does next. Well, actually, it's it's more what he doesn't do next. <laughs> Ofeg's son asks Onan to uh, – Ofeg's sons ask Onan to help them bring a case against Thorbjorn, and Onan does so. Uh, he makes a few strategic alliances, including one with Aud the Deep-Minded, who mm. – 
who's one of the really remarkable figures of earlier sagas. And uh, and with those alliances in place, the case against Thorbjorn goes forward and Thorbjorn, champion of the Earls, is outlawed from Iceland forever. Right. Now, now that seems a little underwhelming as a conclusion, but it's it's huge for this saga that so early in Iceland's history, Onan pursues a legal solution to a killing and sees it through peacefully. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is before the all thing even exists. Yeah, I agree. And it, it sets up the rest of the saga nicely. I, I mean, some people have said Greta's story is a tragedy in part because Iceland in his time doesn't want to accommodate people who pursue violence mm-hmm. as a first recourse. Right. I and mean, this is a Christian nation after all. Uh, we can see that Greta's own ancestor is helping to usher in the end of the Wild West days of Iceland and move toward legal resolutions to violence. Right. And that, but that's just the kind of thing that's going to get Greta the outlaw into trouble. Oh, definitely it is. Um, it's exactly what makes Grettir so much fun to read about, but it also makes him more of a problematic and, and ultimately a tragic figure. He, he's just a man born in the wrong time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, uh, William Penchak makes a good point here. He says that uh, Onan symbolizes the golden age of Iceland's founding, in mm-hmm. which the saga writers like to imagine that there is prosperity, justice, and plenty of room for men to be heroes. Gretter, therefore, stands for the impossibility of heroism in the declining republic of the 13th century. Ooh, well put, Bill. Well put. <laughs> this is the kind of saga reading that I like best. I, yeah. It's all well and good to enjoy the stories in the sagas on their own terms, but I, I think it's important to consider how the saga uses an imagined past and to what purpose it uses it. Uh, Gretter's saga isn't easy for me to place in the standard 13th century social and political mm-hmm. context, uh, part, in part, I guess, because it's written in at least 50 years after Iceland submitted to Norway. Uh, but the imagined history of the settlement period in our saga does reveal a lot about a saga author's worldview. In this case, he seems to value order and peaceful resolutions to conflict. And yet, uh, Gretter's somehow the hero of the text. I don't get it. I don't know. <laughs> like I said before, I'm not sure what to do with this saga just yet. Uh, okay, we really need to get on here. All right, let's wrap up Onan's story. Onan has two sons with his first wife, Asa. Uh, but after she dies, he has a third son with his second wife, Thordis of Gnup. <laughs> And we'll get to them in a minute. Uh, but Onan lives to be an old man, lives a fairly peaceful life, and he dies after a brief illness. Mm-hmm. Now, Onan is clearly an impressive guy. We're told that few men were a match for him, even if they were completely able-bodied. And later we're told that he is the bravest and nimblest one-legged warrior ever to live in Iceland. Sounds like a strange thing to say. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, Lois Bragg points out there were quite a few one-legged warriors around, so mm-hmm. we're supposed to understand that he's being celebrated here. True, but for me, that just adds one more layer to the characterization of Onan. Mm-hmm. He's, he's celebrated as a one-legged warrior, but he never seems to fully reconcile himself to his injury. And when he dies, he's buried in a cairn that becomes known as Tree Legs Mound. So, ultimately, he inscribes the leg with meaning through his actions, but the leg inscribes him as well, Mm. with a name and an identity that trouble him for the rest of his life and even into his death. Ooh, John, that's kind of grim. Look, I I don't write the things. I just analyze them. Uh, But does it have to be so grim? I mean, I I appreciate your point, but one could also argue that the tree foot he wears becomes a symbol of his strength. Hmm. After feeling unwhole for much of his life, he finds wholeness once again by achieving feats of bravery and and force. These feats rival his earlier accomplishments, I think. So the nickname could maybe be a marker of shame, as it no doubt is for some one-legged men in the sagas. But but he turns it into one of pride. It's it's a celebration of his special character and his power. Well, I, one could argue that, but I don't. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> That's kind of the Spielberg version of the saga. <laughs> um, Idealized, I like, yeah. I like to see it as a bit more nuanced. I think it's, I think it's more realistic to look at this as a kind of a struggle that he undertakes and never fully comes to a conclusion about. Uh, that assumes this saga is known for its realism. Well, and its characterization of Onan, it is. Um, okay. and, and don't forget Onan's witty little poem about heading out to Iceland. Oh, yeah. I think it supports my claim rather more than yours. Well, it's not my claim, just to be clear. It's just a counterpoint for the sake of argument. You know I love oh, what you do. Oh, that's right. Back away. Back away. Uh, here's the poem. Men thought me once adequate in the storm weather of Hroti, when the spear storm destruction roared harshly, and Sagandi too. Now I must step out on the shore steed with one leg to visit Iceland. This poet is on the decline. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, the end certainly seems to suggest that Onan isn't feeling all that awesome. <laughs> I, I know, right? I, I, You get the impression that he's sort of contemplating having to step onto the gangplank to get off the ship. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Dealing and sort of confronting the fact that he only has one leg to put on this new turret, new land. Yeah, well, I just love how he equates having one leg, an obvious disability, with having to settle in Iceland. Iceland. <laughs> True. <laughs> Clearly another stuck-up Norwegian like Ingemann in Vatnsdal Saga looking down as, on Iceland as a, a backwater country. Um, but with that brilliant poem, I, I will concede that Onan's nickname and disability indeed haunt him for some time. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, all right, let's move on to the next section, shall we? We shall. Thorgear Bottleback Borrows an Axe. Okay, so this next section moves a bit more quickly because it has to cover two generations before Greta is even born. Uh, as always, new generations come with whole new lists of names and relationships, so if you've got a pen handy, you might want to write some things down here. All right, so Onund and his first wife, Asa, have two sons, Thorgir and Ofegretir. Another Ofegretir. Well, yeah, this one's named for his maternal grandfather. You know, sure. that's pretty common, so... Uh, okay. And and the Thorgir that I just mentioned is the guy who borrows the axe, so you'll want to keep track of him, Thorgir. Yep, yep. Go on. Asa then dies. Onund naturally remarries. Um, and this time he's with a woman named Thordis of Gnup. Um, they have a son named Thorgrim Horitop. Then Onund dies. Thordis remarries to Auland Shaft. And their son is named Asgir. I don't remember why Asgir is important, but I assume that he is. He is later, yes. Uh, okay, we should make it clear right away that it's Thorgrim Horitop who's going to end up being Greta's grandfather. Mm -hmm. Right. So essentially... Thorgrim has three half-brothers, Thorgir Bottleback and Ofig Grettir through his father and Askir through his mother. Right. Now, like John said, we're going to be able to move through these next two generations pretty quickly, but there is one feud in this generation that's really, it's too much fun to skip over. And it revolves <laughs> around, and I don't even know how it contributes to the saga, but we've got to do it. It revolves <laughs> I don't care if it does or doesn't. <laughs> around an incompetent assassin, a broken wine pouch a beached whale, an epic storm, and an obscure land usage agreement. Fantastic. What you're saying is it has everything a good saga needs. Yes, it does. So the the whole thing starts with a man named Flossie Eriksson, who is the, the grandson of Ingolf, the first settler of Iceland, who, uh, if you want to know more about, go listen to episode one of Saga Thing. Now, mm. I, I mentioned before that Flossie's father, Eric Snare, gave land to Onund when Onund arrived in Iceland. Now, that becomes important as one generation passes away and the new generation comes to the fore. In this case, Flossie Erickson doesn't think the land gift to Onund was meant to be hereditary, and so 
Now that Onan's dead, he wants Onan's sons off his property. Right, but Onan's sons believe the gift was permanent, and they don't intend to give up their land without a fight. Right, and so Flossi sends his farmhand, a guy named Thorfinn, to kill Thorgir. Thorfinn heads over to Thorgir's boat shed and hides, waiting to ambush him. And when Thorgir appears with his two friends on his way to go fishing, Thorfinn jumps out of hiding, buries an axe in Thorgir's back, hears it hit and feels blood running down and and then he runs away it's pretty easy good killing see we complain about these idiot farmhands being sent to kill people but once in a while it works out just fine yeah but except no (laughs) this this guy's another idiot (laughs) like most fishermen thorgir likes to bring along a little something to drink you know Uh, just a wee nip in in this case he's carrying a large leather bottle of fermented whey a large nip. And and Thorfinn's axe just happens to split the bottle open and spill its contents. So that's the liquid that he saw spilling out, and that was the sound that he heard. I, I don't think I ever want to be so hard up for a drink that fermented whey starts to seem like a good idea. Eh, don't knock it till you tried it. But <laughs> my, my favorite part of this is that Thorgir's friends think the whole attack is hilarious. They certainly do. And instead of chasing Thorfinn, they stand around laughing <laughs> at Thorgir's spilt milk. Yeah. Uh, and Thorgir, by the way, gets called Bottleback for the rest of his life because of this. So shortly after this, there's a famine in Iceland, which is not a laughing matter. It's very serious. Um, and this is followed by a terrible spring storm. So things are pretty bad. Now, after the storm, everyone in the area heads to the beaches to see what got washed up. Right. Now, this is a hugely important... important. Oh, look at us now. Hugely important. <laughs> oh... <laughs> Whether you're Icelandic or Irish, or any it's very important. Whales out there for Everyone's me to the wearing the wearing of the blubber. Oh, I'm looking for the blubber. You have any blubber? Look at the, the wearing of the flotsam. Uh, <clears throat> <laughs> Tell us what's so important. Yeah, blubber skate. Uh, yeah, this is a hugely important part of Icelandic livelihood in this period, by the way. Uh, salvage rights and the dietary variety provided by beach fish and whales, yeah. they're part of what allowed Icelanders to survive from year to year. Yum, yum. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> this this storm, and this storm provides a huge find. Uh, they, they get a beached finback whale. Quite nice. Yeah, those things are massive. You've seen one? Uh, my, my, yeah, my wife and I went whale watching a few years ago, and we saw a finback from about half a mile away. Mm. Yeah, we'd already seen some humpback whales that day, but the, the finback was like twice their size. I can't imagine what one of those things would look like on land. Well, I mean, to a bunch of hungry Icelanders, I, I guess it looks like dinner. So <laughs> <It's laughs> I don't bone. Yeah. Flossi and his men arrive at the whale first, and they immediately begin cutting up the whale. you got to be quick about these oh, things. Oh, come on. This is a rare opportunity to use flensing in its correct <laughs> oh, context. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. All right. So fine. They're flensing away like anything. Uh, but... <laughs> <laughs> but then Thorgrim Onunderson and his brothers, uh, and there are many allies, they arrive and claim the whale as theirs because it's on their property. Right, yeah. The legal right to this whale isn't totally clear. It's it's on the shore along the Onunderson's property, but Flosi still claims that their right to the land is invalid. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're probably meant to side with the Anundersons here, though, because Flosi doesn't actually have any hard evidence to support him. Well, uh, when it comes to a whale, possession is nine-tenths of the law. <laughs> but uh, once the Anundersons have met enough men to support them, they attack Flosi's men. Um, and since both sides came in a hurry, almost no one's got a sword, and they're all fighting with axes and flinting knives. 
this is just this is a glorious brawl. Uh, there are men climbing up and down the dead whale, struggling in the sand and flailing in and out of the water around the carcass. I mean, seriously, I know this is a long saga, but doesn't this have to be the early favorite to win Best Bloodshed? It's so much fun. I love this image of men flinging giant sheets of whale blubber at one another and hacking away with their knives, rolling in the sand. It's it's amazing. It's it's undeniably a really funny scene, but it it has to be pointed out those knives and axes can do some damage. Oh yeah. Uh, and this fight is a chance for some scores to be settled. Mm-hmm. As soon as the fight starts, Thorgir Bottleback jumps onto the whale and runs up its back to the head. Oh, it's amazing. Where Flozy's henchman Thorfinn is cutting meat from the whale. And as Thorfinn looks up, Thorgir says, "I'm returning your axe." And chops <laughs> Thorfinn's head off with his own axe. I'm returning your axe. <laughs> Oh, it's, it's great. Schwarzenegger would be proud. It's a great candidate for notable witticisms. Yeah, definitely a contender. And, and there's a lot of bloodshed in this scene as well. Thorgrim's brother, Ofe Gretir, is killed, sadly. That's the second Ofe Gretir killed already. They don't last long. Flossi and several of his allies are badly injured. Thorgir's friend, Ivar Kolbeinsen, has a leg chopped off by a Norwegian ally. Finally, a Norwegian ally does something good. <laughs> And Ivar's brother Leif uh, beats another Norwegian to death with uh, with a whale rib. <laughs> <laughs> with a damn whale rib. Yeah. Please, will somebody put this fight on film? It's glorious. Uh, so eventually, various other groups of men arrive to break up the fight. But since there have been multiple deaths and disfigurements on both sides, uh, the eventual lawsuits are somewhat complicated. But in the end, the Onundersons have more and better allies, so they're able to get Flosi outlawed. And full compensation is paid for Ofe Gretir's death. Right. Now, there's a reference at this point in the saga to Flossi's further adventures, which uh, take place in the saga of Balthmod, uh, Grimolf, and Gerpir. Mm. Uh, since he's the kind of guy who tried to steal a finback whale and start a massive knife fight on the corpse, I feel like that's a saga I'd want to read. Yeah, but, uh, you know, a lot of people might feel that way. Unfortunately, this saga does not survive, so uh, yeah. Yeah, we're forced to imagine what other lunacy Flossie and his friends get up to. Probably pretty silly stuff. <laughs> so um, that that actually pretty much wraps up Thorgrim's part of the story. Really? Yeah, you don't want to talk a little bit more about salvage laws? No, I'd love to talk about Flotsam and Salvage all day, but we've got a lot to get to. Um, and we did cover the salvage stuff and problems of eking out a living in Iceland way back in episode 1B. Mm-hmm. So anyone who's really interested can download that episode. Uh, right now, we can finish up this generation fairly quickly. Uh, so let's move up to the next section. Asmund Greylocks goes to Norway. That didn't sound very dramatic. Um, it does not have a very dramatic title. <laughs> <laughs> The saga has a fast pace as it rushes toward Gretir, but there are a few things of note before we get there. Uh, Thorgrim and Thorgir Onundersen divide their possessions, and Thorgrim establishes a farm for himself in Midfjord. He and his wife Thordis have one son, a boy named Asmund. A boy named Asmund. And this is the Asmund in the surname of the famous Gretir Asmundersen. Right, we're getting there. Uh, and since his hair goes gray early like his father's, Asmund is called Greylocks. Yeah, but uh, gray hairs about all these two have in common. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is another one of those difficult father-son relationships like we've seen before. Um, and as usually happens in these cases, Thorgrim demands hard work from his son, and Asmund isn't working up to his father's standards. Right. And everyone else likes Asmund, um, and he decides to leave his father's farm as soon as he's old enough and seek his fortune in the world. Hmm. And, yeah, and, and Asmund's career path reinforces that ideal 
of the civilized Icelander that we saw late in Onan's life. Mm-hmm. He's not a Viking raider. He's not a renowned dueler. He's a hard-dealing merchant who builds a considerable fortune through hard work and international shipping. Right. And, uh, of course, not a lot of sagas get written about shipping magnates who drive a shrewd bargain. Right. Um, I mean, Asmund's <laughs> apparently a, a well-respected man with a lot of connections, but he's not going to capture the saga writer's imagination. So, yeah. yeah. Now he, I mean, he only gets a couple of paragraphs dedicated to his entire career. So let's just skip over him. No, 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 no. We need to cover a few things. Okay. I knew there was going to be something. What is it Silence. this Silence. Uh, so, as he's traveling around the north, Asman spends a winter in Norway and meets a woman named Ronvig. He's oh, immediately man. smitten with her, and since he also happens to be a friend with her brother Thorstein, a marriage is quickly arranged. But it's in Norway. I mean, mm-hmm. this isn't something we've seen a lot of. Icelanders who end up migrating back to Norway. Sure. Uh, generally, they don't want anything to do with the place, apart from, like, occasionally joining the king's retinue as a kind of freelance badass, but they always <laughs> intend to go back to Iceland. Right. Well, it is a little unusual, but it's also short-lived. Ronvik has one son with Osmond and then dies. Hmm. The The son is named Thorstein Dromund, and he's going to be quite important later because he's Gretter's older half-brother. Now, I want you to remember that name. Thorstein Dromund. I you will. won't hear it for a while, but you're going to need to keep it in mind. Oh, you're talking to the audience, aren't you? The audience, not you. Uh, you already know who he is. Right. <laughs> so after losing his wife, Asman decides to get back out on the seas and leaves little Thorstein to be raised by his mother's family. Which is not as uncommon or as callous as a modern reader might think. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's important to remember that travel and trade is how Asmund makes a living. Staying home to become a full-time dad is not really an option for him, and Thorstein's too young to take to sea. Right, and there's also the likelihood that Asmund's going to want to remarry. And if the Brothers Grimm teach us anything, <laughs> it's that not every step-parent is delighted to raise oh, yeah. someone else's kid. Uh, Thorstein Dromund is more likely to receive a caring upbringing in this kind of fostering situation with his uh, with his mother's family. Yeah, just ask Cinderella. Right, exactly, or, or Hansel and Gretel. They've got it pretty mm-hmm. bad. Okay, so now after a few more years of travel, Asmund returns to Iceland and he meets someone who is really and truly awesome. John, I think you know who he meets. Yes, yes. Asmund meets Thorkel Scratcher, the Gothi of Vatnsdal. Thingman name drop. Okay, so that's one for you. Yeah, and it does say that Thorkel is an important man, he's uh, very intelligent, he's learned in the law, oh, he's boy. powerful, and he's well-respected throughout the region. Um, it's almost like he can't stop heaping praise on Mr. Scratcher. Yeah. So, as we're going to see, this writer is impressed with big names, or mm-hmm. at least he's trying to get as many of them as possible into the saga. It's so, almost pathetic. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it becomes kind of... Sad. Uh, but we're going to be seeing a lot of our Thingman. Which is why we're going to have to insert a Thingman name drop sound effect each time it happens, um, because there are just too many to note every time. Right. Uh, but for now, what's important is that Osman marries a cousin of Thorkel Scratchers named Ostis, the daughter of Bard, who's the son of Yokel, who's the son of Ingeman the Old. And that's one for me. So we're evened up. Right, uh, but mine actually does something in this saga, and yours, yours is just a name, like a literal name drop, and nothing more. So I'm gonna, I, I'm not giving you full credit for that. Oh come on, that's that's just a matter of chronology. Ingemund is ah, dead for generations by the time this story happens. 
Whatever. Leaving aside our foolishness for a moment, the important thing here is that Osmond's very impressive bloodline is now going to be mixed with that of the Vatensdal chieftains. So Gretir and his siblings are going to be a very promising group of Icelanders. Well, now that's a point of debate. I mean, promising in the sense of interesting or maybe notorious, not necessarily yeah. admirable. What do you mean, though? I mean, uh, Gretir's brother Atli is a universally beloved, and Gretir... <laughs> okay. <laughs> Gretir's a bit of a problem child. But his sisters and his brother Elugi are generally well-liked. Uh, sort of. On the other hand, Gretir's sister Thordis marries a man named Glum Ospexen, and their son is Ospak Glumson, the villain mm. who nearly causes the downfall of Odd Ofixen in Bandamana Saga. Mm. And, of course, the saga does mention Ofig by name, so if you don't mind... And that's two to one in my favor. Thank you very much. Okay, that that's another hey. cheap one, John. Ofeg's not really in this saga either. So I'm going to give you half a point each for Ingemun and Ofeg. Uh, so so we're even. Yeah, no, I believe we really. agreed the name drop was the important thing. Yeah, okay, okay. Uh, so, so since Asmund and Asdis settled down and raised their family, we've got more important things to worry about than this ridiculous Thingman count. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> we finally reached Gretir. And now things are going to really start happening. Gretter as Munderson, the once and future outlaw. It's really not surprising that we've needed a while to dig through his ancestors' exploits, but this is without a question Gretter's show. That's right. So let's just introduce him properly, shall we? All right. Uh, do you want to do a fanfare or something? <laughs> So, so <laughs> Gretir, that was pathetic. So, Gretir's a fairly striking-looking kid. Um, mm-hmm. We got a pretty good description of him. He's described as a f- handsome uh, fellow with a broad, short face. He's got red hair and freckles like Bill Burr, and he's a bit of a runt as a boy with, uh, with an overbearing, maybe a rough personality, but a quiet and reserved demeanor. My God, I just realized he's Rorschach. <laughs> He really is. <laughs> he fits the profile perfectly. Um, he's also, like Rorschach, got a troublemaking streak uh, from a young age, which is probably not a surprise to anyone who knows this saga. Right. Now, it's odd. He almost sounds like two different people, mm-hmm. which is actually something that's been said about him. Um, Catherine Hume observes that Gretter switches disconcertingly between irascibility and ugly-mindedness on one hand and great forbearance and patience on the other. Which is true. Well... He can be insolently lazy when any reasonable person would agree that work is necessary and fair, but stupendously active in odd spurts. Mm-hmm. He's arrogant to one person, kind and helpful to another, almost at random. This is what frustrates me about Gret here, and I'm very confused about him. <laughs> There's no doubt he he's just a study in contrasts, mm-hmm. um, but, but I don't think it's all that random. I mean, he's certainly a crowd pleaser uh, as a literary figure. I mean, mm-hmm. um, but I admit he's not always that popular with his fellow countrymen, and, and deservedly well, so. Well, I think that's true in the saga itself, but for a lot of later readers, Gretter is one of the biggest and most important personalities in all of Icelandic literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, a 19th century Icelandic poet named Matthias Jakobsen wrote a poem, Gretisjoth, with the line, You, Gretir, are my nation. That is pretty bold. I mean, it is. When you're in competition with Snorri Gothi, oh, Snorri Gothi. Hail <laughs> Scala Grimson and Do I get to do I get to ding the name drop on that? Ding. 
Oh, uh, well, he'll be around. Just, just wait. Uh, Aelskala Grimson or Gisli or maybe even Guthrin Oldswift's daughter or Njal Thorgerson. Uh, you gotta have something special going on to be singled out like that. Um, at the same time, I have to wonder what's going on in 19th century, uh, Iceland to prompt such a statement from Matthias. <laughs> well, um, I think that's the beginning of the independence movement, really. Exactly. Uh, but let's not lose track of the fact that Matthias was a poet. Right? This is an artistic flourish, not necessarily a reasoned opinion. Uh, but I think part of what's so compelling about Greder is his tragic circumstances. He's, as we said earlier, a man born in the wrong century. Yeah. Right. Greta's living in 11th century Iceland, but he inevitably acts like he's living in the 9th. Before the laws were fully established, certainly before they were enforceable, uh, there might have been room for someone like Greta. As it stands, he's admirable, but from a distance. Everyone seems to like the idea of Greta, but no one wants him around very much. True, but one could say, I don't know if I would say this, uh, he is an archetype of the Icelandic heroic personality. I mean, everything about Grettir seems like uh, an extreme, and I would agree with this, an extreme version of the saga protagonists uh, from other things we've read. All right, give me an example of that. All right, well, take his childhood and his relationship with his father. Uh, we already oh, saw yeah, how yeah. difficult uh, the father-son relationship trope can play out with Asmund and his father. Um, mm-hmm. And we've seen it in several other sagas that we've read, like uh, Gunlaug saga, Bandamana saga, Bandamana saga, uh, Halfred saga. And other ones like that. Um, but, mm-hmm. but Grettir, Grettir takes this dynamic to the extreme to the point that, uh, I, I'm uncomfortable with him, um, as he starts to <laughs> torture animals on his father's farm. Uh, okay. Yeah. I see what you mean. Yeah. No, it's true. Uh, many, many animals were harmed in the making of Grettir's childhood. Yeah. I mean, it's a good thing there weren't any psychiatrists around to analyze Grettir because early on his behavior seems to suggest pretty strongly that he's going to grow up and be a serial killer or something. <laughs> he's a dangerous fellow. Well, now that you mention it, I mean, you, and you a know what? Of a serial- I, I realized the problem with that as I said it. All right, but <laughs> it's, it's wrong. Let's stick to the animal cruelty for now. Okay. Uh, the trouble starts when Greta turns 10 and Asmund decides it's time for this young man to start helping around the farm. And now, mm-hmm. Gretter's then given a very simple job of looking after a pack of geese and their goslings. A pack? Is that the oh, official God. term? Yeah, okay. A, a gaggle. A gaggle of geese. Don't get pedantic on me. <laughs> it doesn't much matter what we call them because it doesn't last long. Gretter decides they're too much trouble to take care of, <laughs> so he kills all the gosling and breaks the wings of the geese. Jesus. This is a kid with problems. Oh, he's just getting started. Wait till you hear what he does next. Uh, the next thing he's given to do is, uh, if he can't handle watching the geese, then maybe he can massage his father's back in the evening after Asmund's been working all day. Now, Delightful. Gretter doesn't like that job either, so rather than massage his father's back with his hands, he takes a wool comb and scrapes it down his father's back. <sighs> okay, um... I don't know how to explain a wool comb to anyone who hasn't seen one, but we need to be clear. This isn't like scratching at someone with your dog's hairbrush. Uh, A wool comb is basically a few dozen sharp nails driven through a piece of wood. I I have to imagine that Asmund's back is just shredded by this thing. Yeah. You, uh, you, uh, know, uh, a surprising amount about sheep, uh, for a guy (laughs) from, uh, Queens. Uh, well... Uh, my older son is obsessed with farm animals. Uh, I have, <laughs> I'm not, I don't know what you're implying. Are you saying, uh, uh intentionally or is it just natural there? No, no, it was intentional. 
<laughs> Good. Okay. It's brilliant. Uh, I've seen more sheep sheared in the last couple of years than uh, – well, I, okay. I am I am from New York. Mm-hmm. I'd never seen a sheep sheared in my life before my kids started dragging me to every farm in the area. Uh Anyway, uh, Asmund is obviously displeased by his new back wounds. <laughs> and as the saga says, relations between Asmund and Grettir did not improve after this incident. Uh, but Asmund is going to try one more time with his son. He puts Grettir in charge of his herd of horses, which seems like a ridiculous idea. <laughs> and, and he tells him, like Hrafenkel, pay special attention to my prized mare, Kengala, who can predict mm-hmm. the weather. Right. Uh, Asmund says that if she refuses to go out to pasture, there will definitely be a storm that day. Gretir obviously thinks his old man is crazy, and he doesn't take this job any more seriously than the other two. Oh, we should probably say that anyone who likes horses should skip this next Wait part. a minute, what? No, we didn't warn them about the dead goslings. No one likes geese. Oh, sure. Okay, well, so Gretir finds the work to be a bit cold, a bit dull, and pretty miserable. So around Christmas time, he decides to do something about this. Rather than drive the animals out to find pasture in the cold and snowy hills, uh, where there's little grazing to be done, uh, Gretir mm-hmm. visits the stable early in the morning before everyone gets up. He climbs onto Kengala's back with a carving knife in hand, and then he proceeds Jeez. to peel the hide off her back oh. and then stick it back on. That's that's so disturbing. It's yeah. so awful. Who, Why would he do this? And who would even think of this? What a sick author. Exactly. Yeah. The sticking it back on is what makes it, I think, really monstrous. <laughs> the reason is he doesn't want to go out in the cold. Mm-hmm. So he wrestles with Kengala a bit to get the job done, uh, but he manages... I can't imagine why. <laughs> it's his first uh, wrestling match with another animal. Uh, oh he manages God. to get the hide back on before sending the horse out with all the other animals. Um Kengala naturally spends the day going mad with pain and eventually returns to the barn to hide. Now, according to Gretir, this is exactly as the plan was supposed to go because mm-hmm. Asmund assumes that she's in the barn because of a coming storm. Now, unfortunately for Gretir, he also goes out to see her. So Gretir, meanwhile, is amusing himself by making snotty comments to Asmund about Kengala's prophet- prophetic powers. When Asmund says that a storm must be coming, Gretir responds... Wisdom falls short where it's most expected. And when Osmond reaches out to pat Kengala's back, he says, Well, the foreseeable happens, but the unforeseeable too. What a jerk. (laughs) That's his father. He just stripped the back off of his father's favorite horse. Uh, So, uh, of course, the hide comes off in Asmund's hand, and it's extremely grisly to even think about. But uh, when Asmund realizes what Gretir's done, he is understandably quite furious mm-hmm. and he storms off to his wife and when she assumes that Gretir's done a good job with the horses Asmund responses with an angry verse first of all wait why is he getting all he's getting all weird I don't know what the hell you're doing right now <laughs> I don't know I don't know either uh, first of all he has flayed my trusty Kengla fair women mostly go too far with their words Gretir tricked me that lad is certainly wise enough to teach me not to trust him with orders May the goddess of the ring take in my words. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, given the way he apparently talks, I'm not surprised Greta doesn't respect this guy. Yeah, he's not, not uh, terribly impressive, is he? Uh, I actually quite like Asdis' response to this. I don't know what I object to more. 
that you keep giving him jobs or that he does them all the same way. <laughs> you get the impression that she's used to a lot of bluster from these two guys. Um, so <laughs> what we're learning here is that Gretir doesn't much like working, which is important for the whole saga. Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty standard characteristic among future heroes in the sagas. Uh, on the other hand, it seems like the problem is that Gretir doesn't like being told to mm. work. He has plenty of energy when he wants to do something. That's true to some extent. Uh, I mean, the saga writer goes out of his way to say that Gretir isn't a hearth sitter or a coal biter, which are terms mm-hmm. used to denote laziness. So he's an, uh, an active animal torturing sociopath. Is that really a good thing? <laughs> well, it's hard to say. It depends on what you want him to do. Uh, we are told that Gretir plays nasty tricks like this all the time growing up. And you just wonder what the body count must be for the animals. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes he does get himself into real trouble over it. Uh, on one occasion, he starts a fight with a bigger boy named Alvin and gets knocked down and kneed in the groin. Uh, his brother Otley and some friends break up the fight, but Gretter doesn't shout or try to run at Alvin. Instead, he coldly says, Only a slave takes revenge at once, and a coward never. Oh, that, you know, that's frightening now that I think about it. <laughs> I mean, in the modern context of, of where we live and what we're, you know, what's going on, he's a frightening individual. <laughs> but, uh, of course, nothing more comes of it at that time, but we will be seeing Alvin again, won't we? Oh, yes. Uh, Greater doesn't generally make idle threats. And he's really starting to live up to his potential violence wise. Uh, in fact, shortly after this, he kills his first man. That's right. Uh, this is while Greater is traveling to the Althing in the entourage of his mother's cousin, uh, Thorkel Scratcher, who you may have heard of. Um, yes, I've heard of him somewhere. Gretir uh, and another man named Skaggy both lose their food bags on the road, and when they find one bag, uh, both of the men claim it at the same time. Now, Skaggy mm. loses his temper, and he swings an axe at Gretir, which you shouldn't do. Gretir catches it and pulls it out of Skaggy's <laughs> hand, and then kills him with his own axe. Yeah, that, that, I have to say, this is quite an opening number. Yeah, good for Gretter. We're going to be looking for big things from young Gretter. He won't disappoint you. Gretter's going to rack up a huge number of kills in the course of his career, making our body mm-hmm. count quite impressive. Um, unfortunately, Skeggy was a bad choice for his first kill. He has an influential family who presses a suit against Gretter for the killing, and they win a sentence wow. of lesser outlawry against him. So Gretter's going to have to leave Iceland for a while. He was gonna, probably going to have to go abroad at some point anyway. Sure. I mean, these young heroes all do at some point. Uh, but we haven't addressed the most important question. Wh- which is what exactly? Whose bag of food did they find anyway? You know, I, I was wondering that, but the saga never reveals. <laughs> so uh, I suppose it's kind of moot point since uh, Skeggy's got an axe in his skull. So that kind of resolves yeah, the situation. It was Gretter's bag. Uh, anyway, <laughs> right. So Gretter's parents aren't entirely surprised when they hear that he's been outlawed. No. Uh, I guess when your kid has been killing baby birds and skinning the family horse, you're not shocked when he has trouble getting along with people. <laughs> I mean, that makes sense. The kid uh, clearly needs therapy, but uh, it wasn't <laughs> around back then. So failing that, voting him off the island for a while seems pretty reasonable. Mm-hmm. Now, Asmund in particular seems ready to write Gretter off completely. Um, he won't even give him anything of value to take. Uh, on his journey, and he refuses outright to give Gretter any kind of weapon, which I think is quite wise. Asmund understands right. who this guy is. Right. Um, it's hard to blame him. Uh, yeah, I, fortunately, I guess Gretter's got the p- kind of personality that only a mother could love. Yeah. And his mother does. And when your mother is descended from the Vatnsdal chieftains, 
That means you get a hell of a going away present. Gretter's mom, Osdis, gives him the sword once wielded by her grandfather and great-grandfather, the legendary blade, Ottertangi. Ooh, now that, that really needs an echo effect or maybe, maybe thunder to go with it. Oh, sorry. Uh, let me try that again. <clears throat> yeah. The legendary blade, Ottertangi. Ooh, that's better. And, mm. and, and of course, Gretir being Gretir, he thanks her for the sword by saying, Gee, thanks. This is much better than something, uh, valuable. Jeez. Mm. Oh. <laughs> he really doesn't know when to let up, does he? Yeah, no. He, he's the worst. Uh, at least he does later recite a verse praising his mom for arming him for his journey. Rider with the cloak that clothes the wind. I think the rich man has given me a poor start from home. I hoped for gold from the dragon's lair. For her gift of a wound maker, a woman of caliber proved the truth of the ancient saying. The mother is best to the child. Yeah. You know, that is a lovely sentiment, but I can't help but feel that everyone should be very worried about Gretter being given a sword. And that is where we're going to have to leave Gretter for now. Just starting out on his journey. A troublesome mm. youth. But we've seen troublesome youths take good turns before. And <laughs> this troublemaker is armed with a legendary sword. So how bad can he be? Well, <laughs> he does get outlawed. Uh, again. Yeah. So he's clearly not finished causing trouble. No, not by a long shot. Well, that went by really quickly. Are we done? Yeah, we are. I still have much, much more to say about all this stuff. We haven't even really gotten Gret into Gretter yet. We haven't even gotten him to Norway yet. No, uh, but that's why we're going to do three full episodes devoted to talking about Gretter's saga before we get to the judgment episode. And then we'll have a saga brief on the scholarship. So <laughs> this is an epic story and we're going to try to do it justice. All right. So we'll pick up next time with Gretter as he goes from one adventure to another fighting bears, wrestling the undead, and struggling with his own tendency to make trouble for himself. Uh, and before we get to the second part of Gretcher's saga, however, we're going to get together next week, and we're going to record our follow-up to the Quarter Court. Oh, that's right. Uh, if you haven't listened to the Quarter Court yet and voted on your favorite categories, please do so soon. Uh, you can find the polls in the post for our Quarter Court episode on our WordPress blog, sagathingpodcast.wordpress.com. We'll tally the votes and share the results in the quarter court conclusion. And we're also going to take time in that episode to answer listener questions. So be sure to send us your questions about sagas, about our podcast, about us or our pets. Um, we'll, <laughs> we'll do our best to answer what we can. Uh, you can tweet us your questions on Twitter at SagaThingPod, at Facebook at SagaThingPodcast, or send them to our email, SagaThingPodcast at gmail.com. All right, so we'll be back in about a week with the quarter quarter. And in two weeks with more Gretier goodness. Until then, thanks for listening. Bye for now. How quickly it all ends. Do you know that the more traditional translation of Ivar's nickname is not Horsetail? Oh, what is it? Horsecock. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I think that's our nugget. Um, uh, <clears throat> it's more than a nugget to Ivar. <laughs> <laughs> it's terrible.